0: to be here uh, this afternoon to talk about this this topic. Of course, the answer, um, it's a rhetorical question uh, uh, in some sense. The President is, of course, subject to the rule of law, and even if you ask the President uh, if he were subject to the rule of law, he would say, well, of course, I'm subject to the rule of law. If you ask the Attorney General, uh, he would say uh, the same thing. Uh, But but what I'm going to suggest is that the President has a view of the rule of law uh, which is quite uh, foreign. Uh, to many of the people I think in this room, uh, quite foreign uh, to, uh, to the framers of the Constitution, quite foreign to that which uh, I think the, the world at large holds as uh, their con- conception of the rule of law. And uh, at the end of the day uh, has, I think, the President's view, uh, that is, of the rule of law, has um, uh, undermined in serious ways uh, rather than furthered uh, our security. But I want to get into this um, uh, subject by looking at the most recent controversy surrounding, well, not the most recent because there seems to be one almost every week, um, but one of the most recent controversies surrounding the President's uh, assertion of of, uh, power in the, in what he calls the war on terror and that is uh, the NSA uh, spying program. and the NSA spying program, I think, um, y- you can think of what's at issue in the NSA spying program from a variety of perspectives, but I think there really are two sort of competing perspectives to, uh, to think about it. And one is the perspective that the administration wants you to think about it, and that is, should we be listening in when Al-Qaeda calls? Uh, and I think the, 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 the administration has framed the question in that way Uh, because uh, the answer I think most people would say is yes. And indeed I think most Democrats, most Republicans, most members of Congress would say the answer to that question is yes. Uh, The question, uh, and and often the the President and his defenders present it as if those who are critical of the NSA spying program uh, believe that we should not be listening in when Al Qaeda calls, that we should turn off the wiretap Uh, when uh, Osama bin Laden calls, Uh, and and I think that is a a, a straw man. Uh, uh, As I say, virtually everybody agrees that we ought to be listening in when Al-Qaeda calls. The real question uh, is whether we do that pursuant to law or whether we do it pursuant to a secret order uh, signed by the president which directly contravenes criminal Uh, prohibitions on the books. Uh, That is, should the president uh, do this by following the legal limitations and if they are uh, too onerous seeking to have them changed or should the president simply be able to violate the law in secret? Uh, And the reason I, 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 and I think that's the real issue uh, in the NSA uh, spying case. We may learn as time goes along that there is a broader issue about Fourth Amendment privacy because we don't at this point know the scope of the program. But what we do know is what the government has put forward, what the Bush administration has put forward as its defense of the program. And that defense on its face is one that should give all of us uh, concern. Because at the end of the day, that defense asserts a conception of executive power which is unlimited, which cannot be constrained by the other branches of government, by Congress or by the courts, uh, when the president is, is acting as commander in chief. And it really, to me, the only president who has asserted a power akin to that which President Bush has asserted in the NSA context was President Nixon. And President Nixon also uh, was was in a very similar situation. In in the Vietnam War, uh, uh, someone in the White House Counsel's Office came to him and said, we think uh, that you ought to uh, launch uh, or authorize a program of warrantless wiretapping of Americans uh, in the name of the Vietnam War effort. Uh, And we recognize, we want you to know that the law prohibits you from doing so. Uh, but we think you should uh, authorize it anyway." And President Nixon uh, agreed and did in fact authorize this program. It was called the Houston Plan after John Houston, who was the man who, uh, sort of s- who uh, set it up. Uh, it never got put into place because ironically, J. Edgar Hoover objected. Um, so J. Edgar Hoover put the kibosh on it, but President Nixon uh, authorized it. And when the country learned that the President had authorized a warrantless wiretapping program on Americans in direct contravention of, uh, of the law, uh, it was um, it was listed as one of the counts in his impeachment uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, he was uh, uh, interviewed about this decision to authorize the warrantless wiretapping program uh, by David Frost on television and he famously uh, said in defense of his of his decision to sign the uh, authorization, he said, in my understanding if the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Now President Nixon learned the hard way that that is not in fact the American conception of justice. But President Bush uh, I don't think has learned that lesson because he has essentially revived this Nixon doctrine with one slight modification. President Bush's claim is if the President does it and says the magic words, Commander in Chief, that means it's not illegal. Because his defense of the NSA spying program, his ultimate defense is even though there is a statute on the books that makes it a crime for the President to authorize warrantless wiretapping, uh, even though Congress specifically contemplated wartime and said at most during wartime, the president has the first 15 days of the conflict to engage in warrantless wiretapping so that he can then come to us and ask for broader authority if, uh, if in fact he needs it and we will act quickly to give it to him if it's appropriate. Uh, despite the, that statutory framework that says no warrantless wiretapping in general, uh, and in wartime for the first 15 days only after a declaration of war and and none beyond that, and it is a crime to, to engage in anything beyond that, the president simply went ahead and ordered it. And his argument is that it is unconstitutional to restrict the president's ability to authorize warrantless wiretapping of Americans where he is acting as commander in chief and uh, selecting the means and methods of engaging the enemy. The argument that the Justice Department has put forward in a 42-page single-spaced memo to Congress, and anytime the government needs 42 pages single-spaced to defend something, you know they've got a hard case. Uh, the, the argument at the end of the day is, I mean, there's a number of arguments sort of along the road, but um, the, prince, the the sort of bottom-line argument is even if... Uh, this criminal prohibition directly applies to the president, it can't apply to the president because the president as commander in chief must have unilateral, uncheckable authority to select the means and methods of engaging the enemy. And spying on the enemy is one of the means and methods of engaging the enemy and so if spying on Americans without a a warrant and without uh, uh, any kind of judicial or congressional approval is part of that, so be it and Congress neither Congress nor the courts can stop him uh, from doing so. Now, uh, this is not the first time that the president has asserted this kind of uh, broad-based executive uh, authority, this kind of uh, this, this authority that is literally uncheckable. The first time he did so was with respect to torture, and it was in the now infamous August 2002 Justice Department Memorandum on the torture statute. And that statute, that memorandum was essentially written by the Justice Department to assure CIA officials who were interrogating various uh, Al Qaeda suspects around the world that they would not be prosecuted for torture if they tortured. And one of the arguments that it made was that the torture statute, there's a criminal statute that makes it a crime to, uh, for anyone to torture another uh, person Uh, and the International Treaty Against Torture, which we have signed and ratified, which prohibits torture under all circumstances, expressly, including wartime, the argument that the memo makes is that it would be unconstitutional to interpret that statute and that treaty to restrict the president as commander in chief because he must have uncheckable authority to select the means and methods of engaging the enemy and, the means and method, if he determines that the means and methods of engaging the enemy include torture, then he has the constitutional authority to order that and no one, neither court, neither Congress nor the courts nor international law can stop him. Now, when that memo was, was leaked to the public uh, and, 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 and roundly criticized, uh, the government repudiated it and substituted another memo, but interestingly, they did not repudiate this part of the memo. That is, they did not, in the new memo, address the question of whether the president can order torture in violation of a criminal statute prohibiting it, um, but, they all, but they clearly, they, so, so they left un, un, sort, of, sort of sitting out there the, the, the theory that he, he could. The president again uh, adverted to this theory when he signed the McCain Amendment, The McCain amendment, uh, some of you, some of the people in this room will will know, was uh, an amendment sponsored by Senator John McCain which was designed to close a loophole that the administration had um, creatively found or created uh, in the international treaty that prohibits torture and cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. Now this is an international treaty that is designed to make sure that human beings are not treated in torturous ways, cruel ways, inhuman or degrading ways. The administration read this treaty to uh, apply with respect to the cruel, inhuman and degrading part only to people with US citizenship uh, abroad or people in the United States. So that if you are a foreign national held abroad, say in a CIA detention center, or at Guantanamo, or at Bagram Air Force Base, or at Abu Ghraib, you are not protected by the treaty that prohibits the infliction of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment because that only applies to US citizens uh, and persons within the United States. Now this was a crazy interpretation of the treaty. This was not a treaty designed to protect Americans or people in America. It was a treaty designed to protect human beings. But in the interest of freeing up the CIA to use coercive interrogation tactics and the army, uh, the the administration adopted this interpretation. So John McCain, uh, who himself was a POW and himself was tortured, uh, was was offended by this and and introduced an amendment to close that loophole and make it very clear, as I think was clear until the Bush administration reinterpreted the treaty, that you can't impose cruel and human and degrading treatment on anyone, anywhere. And it passed. And it passed 90 to nine in the, uh, in the Senate and by a similar margin in the House. And President Bush, who initially said he was gonna veto it, obviously couldn't veto it when that kind of, uh, it had that kind of backing. And so he signed it, but in his signing statement, he said, I will enforce this consistent with my understanding of my commander in chief authority, which means I will insist it except when I decide, I will enforce it except when I decide that it shouldn't be enforced and that we should inflict cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment on people. Uh, the, so, so, so they have asserted it with respect to spying on Americans. They've asserted it with respect to torture. And they've asserted it with respect to cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. The president uh, also asserted this, uh, this theory uh, in connection with detention of enemy combatants. And it makes sense, right? If you're talking about the means and methods of engaging the enemy, Detaining the enemy is, is a means and methods of engaging the enemy. It's, in fact, you know, one of the core methods of engaging the enemy is to lock them up. And so uh, he made the argument when the, the, the enemy combatant cases were before the Supreme Court. He argued that it would be unconstitutional to give the Guantanamo detainees the right to come into federal court and challenge the legality of their detention in any way because that would mean that Congress and the courts were in some way limiting the president's power to engage the enemy as commander in chief. Uh, That is to extend the habeas corpus statute, which is a statute that says that anyone who's locked up by the government has the right to challenge the legality of their uh, detention. To extend that to uh, someone who's being held as an enemy combatant would mean that Congress, by passing that act, and the court by engaging in the review pursuant to that act would be intruding on the president's unilateral, uncheckable authority to engage uh, the enemy. So how did that argument fare in the Supreme Court? Well, in the Guantanamo cases, uh, the court rejected it unanimously. Six justices held that the habeas corpus statute applies to the people at Guantanamo. They can challenge the president in court. Three justices dissented, Uh, with Justice Scalia writing the opinion, but Justice Scalia interestingly said, uh, I think it's clear that Congress could have extended this review authority to the president's detention of enemy combatants. I just think they didn't, in fact, do that. So all nine justices agreed that the president's theory was wrong. That is that Congress and the courts can, in fact, review the detention of enemy combatants, one of the core Uh, functions of engaging the enemy. The president made a similar argument in the enemy combatant case involving the US citizen, Yasser Hamdi, who was uh, allegedly uh, picked up in Afghanistan. Uh, We we, we initially thought he was a foreigner, put him at Guantanamo. When we realized he was an American citizen because he'd been born in Louisiana, uh, we quickly brought him uh, uh, to uh, the United States but kept him in military incommunicado detention. And with respect to Mr. Hamdi, because he was a citizen and because he was here, and because the Fourth Circuit had rejected their earlier argument that even citizens have no right to go to court to challenge the president, the president took a slightly modified view. It said, the courts can review when we detain U.S. citizens, but because of the president's commander-in-chief authority, the courts can do nothing more than rubber stamp the president's decision to detain. That is, the, pres- the courts cannot ask whether the person actually is an enemy combatant. They can only ask whether the president has said the magic words, he is an enemy combatant. Uh, and again, the court rejected the president's uh, position. Uh, and here I'm, I'm quoting from Justice O'Connor uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Hamdi decision. She writes, uh, for the, for the uh, plurality of the court, whatever power the US Constitution envisions for the executive in its exchange with other nations or with enemy organizations in times of conflict, it most assuredly envisions a role for all three branches when individual liberties are at stake. It most assuredly envisions a role for all three branches when individual liberties are at stake. So again, that is a direct repudiation of the president's argument that when you're talking about the means and methods of engaging the enemy, no other branch has a role to play uh, because the commander in chief has uncheckable uh, authority. Now, um, the, 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 the interesting thing about this is that despite the fact that the president lost on this argument in a big way in the Supreme Court, uh, not two years ago, he's still making the argument. But I guess if your view is that you, as president, say what the law is, and not the courts or Congress, then it doesn't matter that the Supreme Court has unanimously rejected your theory of the Constitution. You just, you know, keep keep uh, going right along. Now, um, I want to I want to uh, what I want to do is is, is uh, explain why this, if it's not already evident, why this interpretation is wrong. Uh, but then I wanna kind of link it to uh, a broader problem in the administration's approach to the war on terror, uh, in quotes. Um, why is this wrong? I mean, you know, some people argue that the president uh, has particularly in, a particularly important role to play in foreign relations, especially important relation, role to play when we're at war. You need a top-down, clear line of authority uh, the president has to be commander in chief, surely that means something, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think you can start by looking at the text of the Constitution, and what you see when you look at the text of the Constitution is that the framers were concerned about executive power. After all, we had rebelled against a monarchy, King George, and we did not want to you know, create a new King George. Uh, maybe we have, but the, 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 the theory was that we shouldn't. And so even though there was a recognition that you need the president to be commander in chief to run the war, uh, we, the, the understanding was we want Congress to have significant power vis-a-vis uh, any war effort. So the framers gave Congress, not the president, the power to declare war and to initiate any sort of lesser Hostilities. It gave Congress, not the President, the power to raise and fund the Army and the Navy. It gave Congress, not the President, the power to set rules governing the Army and the Navy. So this is very interesting. The President is Commander in Chief, but unless Congress funds an Army, he has no Army. And the President is Commander in Chief, but Congress gets to set the rules that govern how the Army should conduct its affairs. So Congress, pursuant to that power, clearly can forbid the army from engaging in torture, and uh, and, and 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 the Constitution envisions exactly that kind of limiting role on behalf of uh, of Congress. Uh, the, the the and historically, uh, Congress has in fact regulated war making. It has authorized wars. It has cut off funding for wars. It has cut off funding for particular campaigns like the bombing in Cambodia. Uh, It has uh, set forth rules for governing the military. They're called the Uniform Code of Military Justice and they say, not the president, what military officials uh, and enlistees can and cannot do and must and must not do. Uh, It has uh, enacted Uh, laws that that govern the the governance of occupied territories, the kind of thing that the president would do as commander in chief but for Congress's intervention. But once Congress intervenes, um, the president has to enforce the laws that Congress has passed. And uh, it has prohibited the use of torture and now the use of cruel inhuman and degrading treatment uh, by the army under all uh, circumstances. So Congress, uh, clearly has done this in the past uh, and, uh, and, and the framers certainly understood that, the pre- that, that Congress uh, should uh, engage in this kind of checking function on the president. I think they, they correctly understood that a president in wartime poses particular dangers uh, because there's gonna be particular temptations to gather up uh, and uh, amass a lot of concentrated power. Uh, and therefore it's important that Congress be able to play a role to check uh, the, 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 the executive. Now, uh, in addition to the, the Supreme Court rejecting this position of President Bush in, in, uh, in the most recent uh, enemy combatant cases, the Supreme Court has also rejected the argument when other presidents have made versions of this argument. So Harry Truman during uh, the Korean War argued that the commander in chief authority allowed him to to seize the steel mills when they were subject to a national strike. And they were the uh, producers of the armaments for the war. And the Supreme Court said, no, you cannot seize the steel mills. Why? Because Congress considered giving you that power, but declined to do so. And you can't take it unilaterally where Congress has declined to give it to you. The same thing uh, happened earlier in a a war in 1804 with France where Congress had authorized the president to seize merchant ships going to France. And he he issued an order pursuant to his commander in chief authority to seize merchant ships coming from France. And the ship owner challenged him in court, and the Supreme Court said uh, the president, as commander-in-chief, cannot seize ships coming from France where Congress has only authorized him to seize ships going to France because the authorization to seize ships in one direction uh, presumes a denial of that authority to seize the ships in the other direction. Uh, if the president were uh, were right that the commander-in-chief authority is uncheckable, then Congress would have nothing to say about whether you can seize ships going to or from France. The president would have unilateral authority to seize them no matter what if he uh, determined that was necessary to engage the enemy. So every time the Supreme Court has been confronted with an argument of this type, that the president can ignore the law when he is asserting a commander-in-chief authority, it has rejected it. Now... Um, let, me, let me talk about why, uh, why, why this ought to concern us uh, from, a, from a still broader perspective. I think it ought to concern us as American citizens because this is a remarkable assertion of unchecked power. And if, if anything is critical to the American system of government, it is checks and balances. And the President's assertion would do away with checks and balances during a wartime. But I think it's, it's, it's more troublesome even than that because what I think it reflects is a broader hostility on the part of this administration to the rule of law itself. To so the rule of law as a, uh, 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 it, it sees the rule of law as an obstacle to getting the job done in the, what it calls the war on terror. And in in, in, in one area after another, it has advanced arguments that essentially lead to the conclusion that law has no role to play in checking the administration's decisions in the war on terror. Uh, so, you, so, you know, take Guantanamo, where the administration argues on the merits and argues to this day on the merits, that the people at Guantanamo, the human beings at Guantanamo, have no rights. They have no rights under constitutional law, the administration says, because they're foreigners and they're outside of our formal jurisdiction. Uh, And they have no rights under the Geneva Conventions because we've determined that they're Al-Qaeda or the Taliban and we've determined that they are not entitled to any rights under the Geneva Conventions. And if the administration had its way, they'd have no rights enforceable anywhere because they wouldn't even be able to get into court in the first place. The bottom line is we put people at Guantanamo so that we could act free of any legal limitations. Same thing with respect to torture. The argument in the torture memo that I've already laid out for you is designed to do away with one of the most fundamental international prohibitions on government conduct that human rights law knows, the prohibition on torture, by asserting that it is, uh, it's subrogated to the president's power as commander in chief. The CIA's black sites, in, in in the 1970s, when Argentina was fighting its dirty war and disappearing thousands of people, picking them up off the streets, holding them incommunicado, denying any public acknowledgement that they are in in detention. We condemned it in the harshest terms as disappearance. Uh, And yet today, we have set up an institutional structure of secret prisons in undisclosed centers around, in undisclosed countries around the world so that we can disappear people into those CIA black sites and so that they are outside of any protection of the rule of law. Uh, We've adopted the practice of renditions in which we send people from one country to another to have the other country do our dirty work for us. And again, when challenged, the government argues that these people have no rights. I represent a man named Maher Arar. He's a Canadian citizen. He's been living in Canada for the last 20 years. He was born in Syria, so he has dual nationality. He was returning home from, a, a, a flight from uh, on a flight from Europe uh, to Canada, uh, changing planes at JFK. When U.S. officials took him out of line, locked him up, uh, uh, denied all of his requests for a lawyer, lied to the lawyer that his family obtained for him when they learned that he was detained at JFK, Uh, so that the lawyer could never actually get to see him and and effectively uh, argue for him. And then ordered him deported on the basis of secret evidence. When he said, you know, fine, I I didn't want to come to the United States anyway. I'm just, you know, transiting through to Canada. Here's my, you know, flight coupon for my connecting flight. They said, oh, no, no, we don't need your connecting flight coupon because we've chartered a federal jet for you and we're going to send you to Syria and indeed they sent him to Syria. Now you've got to ask yourself why in the world would the United States government take a Canadian citizen on his way home to Canada and send him to Syria? The well, last I checked we had better relations with Canada than with Syria, although this kind of thing might change that. Um, uh, but of course Canada doesn't have a record of torturing uh, its suspects and Syria does and he was indeed tortured, and he was locked up for a year without charges in Syria, until the Syrians released him when they found no evidence that he was involved in any wrongdoing whatsoever, and he returned to Canada, this time not transiting through JFK. Uh, and in Canada, no charges have been brought against him, and in fact, last year, Canada, Time Canada named him Person of the Year. Uh, time United States uh, named President Bush Person of the Year. But when we brought a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of of forcibly taking a Canadian citizen, uh, you know, off the transit line and sending him to Syria against his will to be tortured, the government's argument was, Mr. Arar doesn't have any rights. He's a foreign national. He never entered the country. Apparently, JFK is not part of the United States. I don't know how many of you have been there. It does feel like you're in a third world country when you're you're going through JFK, and apparently that's their theory. But in any any event, the claim is no rights attached. No rights attached, therefore, no limits on the president's uh, actions uh, in the war on terror. And the same thing uh, with with respect to spying. And I think this is captured most uh, uh, precisely in a, uh, in a document issued by the Pentagon in March of last year, March 2005. It's called the National Defense Strategy and it has a single sentence which I think really sums up the administration's attitude towards the rule of law. And the sentence is this, the strength of the nation state, meaning our nation state, will continue to be challenged by a strategy of the weak, using international fora judicial processes, and terrorism. Now that is a remarkable sentence because, first of all, it dismisses the rule of law, international fora, and judicial processes as a strategy of the weak. We don't have to be concerned with it because we're not weak, of course. It's a strategy for those other countries and those other people who are weak, not for us who are strong. But even more remarkable is the notion that the rule of law is now associated with the terrorists. It's a tactic, like terrorism, that will be used against us. Now, I would have thought that when a group of people hijack planes, fly them into buildings, kill 3,000 innocent civilians, that the rule of law would be on our side, not on their side. They they violated every principle of the rule of law, of human dignity, of respect in their actions. And you would think the rule of law would be on our side in fighting them, but in fact, four years later, the administration sees it as something that is is aligned with the terrorists uh, against us. I I think uh, that that gets it exactly backwards. And I think uh, the, the proper way to understand the role that the rule of law plays in fighting against terrorism is reflected in a, in a, in a, in a, in a passage from an opinion by uh, Justice Arun Barak, the president or the chief justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, in a decision that pro- prohibited the use of quote-unquote moderate physical pressure in interrogating Palestinian suspects. And Justice Barack wrote, a democracy must sometimes fight terror with one hand tied behind its back. That's the rule of law. Even so, a democracy has the upper hand. The rule of law and the liberty of an individual constitute important components in its understanding of security. At the end of the day, they strengthen its spirit, and this strength allows it to overcome its difficulties. That from someone who has, of course, faced the prospect of terror almost on a daily basis for more than a decade. Uh, our administration, uh, facing one uh, catastrophic terrorist attack, has taken the opposite point of view. And I think uh, it, this, this is a disaster for uh, from a security perspective, for at least two reasons—there are many reasons—but at least two reasons, and I—I'll—I I'll, I'll, want to just lay those out, and then I want to say what we can do uh, to to try to respond uh, as I close. Um, but when one fights the threat of terrorism by violating the most basic principles of the rule of law, principles like equality, principles like a fair trial, principles like a prohibition on torture, arbitrary detention, you undermine your efforts. One way that you undermine our efforts is that you tend to sweep broadly and expend unnecessary resources on threats that actually are not threats. So we are fighting a war with a country that never threatened us in the name of the war on terror uh, in Iraq. Or in the wake of 9-11 we rounded up 5,000 foreign nationals and put them in preventive detention in anti-terrorism moves. We sought out another 8,000 for FBI interviews because they were from Arab and Muslim countries. We made 80,000 foreign nationals come in for special registration, fingerprinting, and photographing because they are from Arab and Muslim countries, all on the theory that we'd find some terrorists. Today, four and a half years later, not one of those 5,000, 8,000, or 80,000, 93,000 total, not one of them stands convicted of any terrorist crime whatsoever. And that's a massive amount of resources directed at the wrong guys. Uh, John Stewart captured this as he captures virtually everything on The Daily Show when he was do- he did a story on the NSA program when it first broke. He called it rampant buggery. And he, and he, and he quoted the, uh, the, 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 the White House spokesperson as saying, you know, the reason we need this NSA spying program is we need to connect the dots. We need to connect the dots. So then John Stewart said, okay, well, let's see. Oh, and, th- and then, then, then he put up a, the, a, a newspaper headline from the New York Times that had run that week, which, uh, which said that the FBI agents had been complaining bitterly about being inundated with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bad leads from the NSA spying program, all of which had led to dead ends or innocent Americans. So, he, so John Stewart says, well, okay, let's, le- let's look at what the dots were before 9-11. We had, they attacked the World Trade Center once. We had Osama Bin Laden th- threatened to attack us again. We had, set, we knew several of their people were, high-level people were here in the United States. We uh, knew that they were taking uh, flight lessons without learning to land. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, the, and, you know, and the line is in a direct, you know, there's a direct line between those five uh, dots. He says, well, let's look at what, what, the, what, what the screen looks like after the NSA spying program. And the whole screen fills up with dots. And then he says, well, you know, if you look at that closely enough, a unicorn will appear. <laughs> and indeed, a unicorn <laughs> appears. But, but the point is that the, one of the things the rule of law does with respect to coercive force is it says, you should use coercive measures against those as to whom you have some basis for suspicion. And that's a narrowing function that actually makes the, uh, the, ex- the, the expenditure of resources more efficient. When you start rounding up 93,000 people who have nothing to do with terrorism, you're wasting a lot of resources. When you fight a war against a, a country that doesn't threaten you, you're wasting a lot of resources, resources that could be better spent seeking to protect us in more, uh, more, effective, uh, more effective ways. But more importantly, I think, when you bypass the rule of law, you sacrifice the legitimacy of the enterprise. And the enterprise here is a legitimate one. Seeking to protect us from attacks like those that occurred on 9-11 is unquestionably legitimate. But if you do it in an illegitimate way, the enterprise loses its legitimacy. And that comes with tremendous costs. Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo uh, have become sort of emblematic of the United States approach to the war on terror. And Al Qaeda couldn't have asked for better propaganda uh, for its fight against us. Uh, if it had you know, it hired the, the best minds on Madison Avenue, couldn't have come up with a better, uh, better program than Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. We essentially played right into their hands. And, and, and the, the, the reaction that those actions in which we are seen as not being bound by the rules that everyone else is being bound by, as not respecting the human dignity of people who are not Americans, uh, of not uh, believing in the right to a fair trial. Uh, when, when we're seen that way, uh, we give them ammunition for their recruitment. We make it less likely that those who are not actually going to be working with them but might be in their community are going to be less likely to, to help us out in identifying uh, uh, the bad guys. And we make it less likely that foreign countries are going to find it uh, of interest to work with us in what is ultimately an international uh, an international struggle that requires the cooperation of a whole of a whole host of countries, and so I, you know, I I uh, think of a, of a couple of uh, 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 of things when I think about sort of how this has affected our image. One is that before 9/11, I think we were known as the standard bearer for the rule of law. We our experts went around the country. Training other countries in how to, you know, develop rule of law systems and the like. Uh, I was struck when the the Washington Post issued its, um, uh, released a story about the black sites, the CIA black sites, that the next day Russia rushed out a press release saying they had nothing to do with it. Now, it seems to me that we have fallen far when Russia feels the need to distance itself from us because of concern that its human rights record might be tarnished by the association. Uh, but, but, but also I think if you, you think about where, uh, how America was viewed on September 11th, 2001, when we had the world's sympathy, when Paris Le Mans headline was we are all Americans, to today, when we have the world's antipathy, when there is a higher level and more widespread level of anti-Americanism than ever before in the history of this country. Uh, And you ask, what caused that? You know, some people say, well, they hate us because of our freedoms. They hate us because of our privileges. We had all those freedoms. We had more freedoms on 9-11 and we had just as many privileges on 9-11. And yet we had the world's sympathy. Today we have the world's antipathy. And I think the, the reason for that has to be laid at the at the feet of the administration and of its, of its attitude in fighting what it calls the war on terror uh, using tools uh, that it would not uh, permit any other country to use against our people. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I think that anti-Americanism uh, is the greatest threat to our national security as we go forward. Now let me close by just talking about the importance of of, uh, of, of fighting back and of standing up to this kind of uh, a, a view of commander-in-chief power. Because when I, when I you know, people often ask me, you know, is there any, do you have anything positive to say? And, uh, you know, I, 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 I often say, well, you know, I was, in a, I was at a conference in Berlin a couple of years ago at which an Israeli philosopher um, was speaking and he, it was a post 9-11 thing and he gave a very, very glum talk. Uh, I mean, mine, this is an upbeat talk compared to his. And at the end of it, he says, You know, if I was in, a, in America, I would feel the need to end on a note of optimism. But I'm an Israeli and I'm in Berlin, so I'm done. <laughs> so, But I'm an American, and here I am in the heartland of America. And, and, and I think that there are some, uh, some reasons for hope. And the principal reason for hope that I find when I sort of look back over the last five years is the acts of citizens and specifically of civil society organizations of human rights groups, uh, immigrants groups, civil liberties groups, grassroots groups in standing up to the kinds of abuses that I've laid out here and speaking out against them and writing reports uh, uh, and filing lawsuits and organizing petition drives. Uh, and getting uh, a referendum uh, uh, passed, uh, that, that, that speak up for the principles that this country was uh, built upon and should uh, stand for. And I think that plays a, a, a significant role, particularly at a time when all three branches of the federal government are essentially controlled by the same party. So how do you have checks and balances when the Republicans control the executive branch, the Congress, and the courts, very difficult. Um, and, and, and it only underscores the importance of civil society. And I think back to the last major national security crisis, the McCarthy period, and, and you ask yourself, what was civil society doing then? Well, first of all, there wasn't much civil society back then of the type there is today. There was the ACLU, but what was it doing? It was purging itself of communists during, world, during, the, during the Cold War. It wasn't defending the communists. Two groups defended the communists, the National Lawyers Guild and the National Emergency Civil Liberties Committee and they were marginal groups and they were red baited for doing so. You, you know, fast forward to, 2000, to, to, to 2001, uh, there are a host, of the, first of all, the ACLU is doing a tremendous job, but it's not alone. There are a host of civil society groups out there that just didn't even exist. Um, back in the 1950s, and they're providing an important check, uh, a critical check on what the administration is doing. And I think the administration has, has been forced to back down in a variety of areas, on cruel and human-integrating treatment, on torture, uh, on Guantanamo, uh, on the massive roundups right after uh, uh, 9/11, uh, on a host of uh, issues, on total information awareness. And maybe we'll see. Uh, on the NSA spying program. But they only have been forced to stand down because of citizens getting involved and getting involved through organized political work in defense of human rights uh, by groups like the ACLU, the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Human Rights First, the immigrants groups, the privacy groups, uh, uh, all of which give you an opportunity to engage with the issue and to stand up for what this country uh, should uh, ideally stand for and ultimately to uh, make, to, to, to sort of fight for the principle that in the struggle against the threat of terror, we should see the rule of law as an asset, not an obstacle. Thank you very much.